Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Alex. And I'm Hannah. This week, we're talking to Dr. Joanna Sadler, synthetic biologist and BBSRC Discovery Fellow in Biotechnology at the University of Edinburgh in the School of Biological Sciences. In this episode, Joanna introduces us to the magnificent world of microbes and convinces us that they are the ultimate molecular engineers. Driven by a lifelong passion for sustainability, Joanna's research is all about turning what we perceive as waste into higher value in-demand products. Joanna's recent work has shown that by reducing plastic bottles to their chemical building blocks, we can reassemble these into a delicious product called vanillin, the source of the vanilla flavour and scent you find in cakes and perfumes. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. My name is uh, Joanna Sadler. Most people just call me Jo. Uh, my answer to most things, though. So I am a new principal investigator at the University of Edinburgh. I work in the School of Biological Sciences. My background's actually a little bit different. It's um, I studied chemistry originally and then did a PhD more towards biology, so biogatalysis and organic chemistry. And then I became really, really fascinated in uh, synthetic biology and this way that we can actually manipulate microorganisms to do interesting things, especially from a chemist's perspective. Um, So I did a couple of postdocs moving more and more towards the biology. And finally, I've ended up here in a biology department. So I've really, I think, made a bit of a transition towards uh, away from chemistry. But it's been a really exciting journey. So what is it that you do now? Or really, can you just explain synthetic biology to us? Synthetic biology is this idea that once we understand how biological systems work and you can think of them as being made up of parts and you can understand the function of those different parts, you can then actually rationally design new biological systems to do useful things. So people make the analogy of like building a house, you know that you need bricks and you need mortar and you need a door. And so in in synthetic biology, we know that we need genes which code for proteins. We know that we need things to control the genes, so like promoters. And then, you know, there's all these different bits and you can just build them up and then actually coerce a living system to do something that it wouldn't naturally do through manipulating its genetic makeup. And, and what is it that drives you to work in this field? So as I said, I'm a chemist by training. And so I always think about how can we make molecules? Um, but in particular, I'm really interested in how we can make molecules sustainably. So I don't think I need to tell anybody listening to this that we are in a bit of an environmental crisis at the moment. We are polluting our planet with plastic. We're pumping out far more greenhouse gases than we should be. We shouldn't be pumping out any at all. But, um, you know, we're, we're really headed towards a bit of an environmental disaster at the moment. And I personally believe that environmental crisis should be driving every decision we make because, you know, this is, this is the most pressing issue we have as a planet. Um, so my sort of small contribution to the planet and to help humanity, I would like to think, is that helping to drive this more sustainable future using the skill set I have, which is thinking about how to make molecules. So traditionally, we make molecules using chemistry. We, we take one chemical, which is often derived from oil, actually, from petrochemicals. And then we do some, we add some other things and we stir it all around. And there's it's a steam that comes out and you see all these chemical plants getting a bad name for themselves. And we get something out at the end. Now, there is a greener way to do that, and that is to use biology to do it for you, because microbes are actually really amazing chemists, and they operate at really mild temperatures, so they often work at like room temperature or 30 degrees, 
and they often work in water as well. So you haven't got sort of these sort of typically um, harsh chemicals. And the other nice thing about biological processes is that they often use renewable or even waste feedstocks to make the product instead of starting from oil. So there's a lot of benefits. So it's that union of, of chemistry, but plus this power of synthetic biology that really drives me to keep pushing this forwards. And, and ultimately, I'm really motivated by that idea of sustainability. And is that something you've always been interested in? Or is it something you discovered during your many interesting uh, exploits in PhD and postdoc world? I've always been interested in sustainability, so I've always been very keen to think about ways in which humanity as a whole can be more sustainable. I would say my interest in synthetic biology as a way to access interesting chemicals, that's something which has is, is perhaps developed more in the last five, ten years as I've just learned more about this subject. I think when I was certainly when I was doing my A-levels and undergraduate, it was a very, very new field and you know, there wasn't really so much publicity around it as there is now, I think. So it's not really something I'd had a lot of exposure to. But as I said, once I'd kind of had my eyes open to this whole new world out there, I was just really eager to start working in it and start seeing uh, seeing how we could use that. You've published something, I think it was earlier this year, where you were using plastics to make a useful product, vanillin, if that's how you pronounce it correctly. Do you want to go into a bit more detail about what that work was and what it is that you're hoping to use that work to achieve? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll actually start with the last bit of your question. Through all of this, I, you know, we, we think of plastic as a waste product, right? We see all over the news that there's mountains of plastic waste building up in the oceans and all over the place. And plastic has been detected in pretty much every environment you can think of. And so there's a huge amount of negative press around plastic. And I think some of this is, is, is correct. You know, obviously, there is a problem and it shouldn't be accumulating in those places. But I also wanted to perhaps try to curb people's concept of this and actually maybe introduce the idea that we could think about plastic as a resource. So if we're able to harvest some of that pollution, can we then actually use it as a feedstock to do something useful with and productive rather than just seeing it as a problem? And again, as I said, I'm a chemist, so I was thinking about, well, can we use this as a way to make molecules? So I think I mentioned earlier that actually we make a lot of the molecules we use industrially at the moment from petrochemicals, so things like oil and gas. Obviously, these are running out. And so if we can find a way to make them from waste products, then there's a clear advantage there because we've already created the waste. We may as well do something useful with it. So I thought, well, can we use plastic to make something useful? So I had a look at this structure of the plastic that plastic bottles are made out of. And this is a substance called polyethylene terephthalate, or I just call it PET for short. And I had a look at the, the chemical makeup of that and used my knowledge of enzymatic pathways to come up with this pathway to convert the PET plastic into this high value molecule called vanillin. So vanillin is actually the, the molecule that is responsible for that characteristic taste and smell of vanilla. So it's got this really nice kind of sweet, sweet fragrance. It's often used in baking and all sorts of things. You've probably got some in your fridge for the next cake that you're going to make. And so, yeah, it really just stemmed from there. It was this idea that I had on paper and then went away into the lab and tried it out, put all the enzymes together in one cell. And incredibly, it actually worked. Um, and we were <laughs> able to take a, literally a plastic bottle off the street and convert some of that plastic bottle into this vanilla flavoring. That's amazing. And vanillin, is that, is that something that's uh, greatly in need at the moment? Yeah, so there is a huge demand of vanilla. Vanillin, sorry, it's in excess of 20,000 tons every single year. 
So naturally, you would get vanillin from the vanilla plant. And this grows in places, not my office, I have actually got one behind me here, but it's not doing so well. And um, because they like to be in the Madagascar climate, <laughs> and it's not quite that like that in Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, they like kind of warm, humid environments with just the right amount of ventilation. And yeah, they, they do grow in other places like Ecuador and Mexico as well, but the, the main exporter is Madagascar. It's a very fluctuating market. There's a huge amount of problems um, locally within that, that sort of sector as well. And the supply of natural vanillin is really quite unpredictable. It's also hugely, hugely expensive. And there is just no way that that natural vanillin can supply the vast demand that we have for this molecule across multiple industries. So the fragrance industry, pharmaceuticals, flavorings, agrochemicals, bulk chemicals, it's actually very, very widespread. So to make up this demand, we have to, um, we have to think about other sources. And actually, currently, a lot of the vanilla that is used industrially is actually prepared from petrochemical or oil feedstocks. And that's actually something a lot of people don't realize. They think that all the vanilla they're eating is from Madagascar. And actually, probably, unless you get the really expensive stuff, probably it's not. Probably it's been made in a chemical factory like many of the other things that we eat. So this vanillin that you're speaking about that is kind of synthetically made, is it that at the moment that's made from kind of pure products, like from oil, for example, but not from recycled waste like you're doing? Absolutely. So there are, there are a few different ways in which um, it's made at the moment. The most common way is to make it from a fraction of oil. So you can take benzene and then you can further derive that and turn it into a molecule called guaiacol. And that is the feedstock molecule for most vanillin that's made at the moment. You can actually get guacol from other feedstocks. One of them is lignin. And lignin is uh, something that you get from biomass, so trees, basically. So there are some processes now emerging, which is actually using a more renewable source of this guacol feedstock. But the vast majority does, does, come from oil, does come from oil. So how green is this new chemical process? I'm a bit biased, but I, I do think it is quite green. So whereas a lot of the, the chemical processes that make vanilla at the moment operate under fairly harsh conditions, the process that we have literally takes a waste product. It uses a, a whole cell catalyst. So this is a renewable catalyst and it's also biodegradable and it's non-toxic. So there's no sort of metals involved at all. And we also don't have to add any toxic reagents. The other thing is that it works at room temperature, so there's no high temperatures, so it's a very low energy impact process, and it also works in water, so we're not using organic solvents, which then have to be um, often incinerated to get rid of them. So we haven't done the full life cycle analysis on this yet, and that's partly because it's at a very early stage. We still need to further optimize it and scale it up, and at that point, we would be looking to do full life cycle analysis to really get some numbers out on how sustainable and how green this technology is in comparison to the existing ones. So how long do you think it'll be before we're eating your vanilla? I think, give us, give us a good few years. We need, to, <laughs> we need to improve the process. We need to scale it up. And then very importantly, obviously, we've got to put that vanilla through the same regulatory checks that you put into any other food product. But the thing that I want to, I really want to stress, because I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding, I think, around this work is that once you have purified the product out of the vanilla mixture, once you've purified that and you've just got a pure sample of vanillin, which is derived from plastic, you've got the product, that chemical is actually indistinguishable from the chemical that you would get from the, the natural vanilla plant. 
you know, it's it's actually the same thing. And a lot of people think, oh, it's it's from plastic. It must be different. It's not. Once you've done that chemistry, it is the same molecule. So there's no reason in theory why that shouldn't be safe for uses in food products. One of the things we were wondering when we were reading a bit about your research was exactly that of like, would you actually ever find this in a product if it's derived from a waste bottle, so to say? But since you've explained that the majority of vanillin is from oil derived products, essentially, hopefully you could see it on the shelves at some point. Leading on from that, do you think that your method could be applied to other plastics than the one that you're using at the moment? It's a really interesting question. In theory, we should be able to make useful things out of other types of plastic. So plastic is basically made of carbon and sometimes oxygen and sometimes nitrogen. So those are the molecules of life. They're the molecules. So they're the elements of life. They're the elements that make up most pharmaceutical compounds, most organic molecules. So in theory, if we have the technology to do it, there's no reason why different types of plastic can't also be used as a feedstock. I actually chose to use the plastic bottle PET um, material because it's actually quite well predisposed to this kind of chemistry. Just because of the structure of the molecule, it's actually already set up to, to make these kinds of molecules that are similar to vanillin. So it was a really good one to start with. I think a, a much bigger challenge is taking other plastic types, like polyethylene, polystyrene, PVC, these types of things, these are actually a much bigger challenge because they're not so well predisposed to turning them into other types of molecules. And actually, when you do break them down and turn them into other things, you tend to get more complex mixtures than you would do from PET. So I think there's certainly potential there. And I think we will see these technologies coming out in the future. But I think that they are a bigger challenge than starting from PET, which is just a very nice plastic to work with. Based on the research you're doing, which is obviously taking plastic and turning that into essentially a food product is there any examples of doing the reverse so essentially taking kind of like food products and creating higher value products from them be it plastic or something else yeah I think there is and I think this is work that's actually ongoing in the university at the moment so I have a colleague who is doing something along these lines and he's interested in taking waste from fish so fish food products uh, which are very rich in a number of really interesting compounds, especially sort of fatty acids and oily type compounds, and using that as a feedstock to make, just as you said, to make high value chemicals. So his group have a very strong interest in ways to make adipic acid, which is one of the chemicals that you use to make nylon. So the stuff that we all make clothes out of, in fact, we're probably all wearing some adipic acid right now. Actually, adipic acid is currently made, again, from petrochemicals, by an extremely environmentally damaging process, and it produces vast quantities of nitrous oxide, which is a very, very potent greenhouse gas, I think like four times more potent than carbon dioxide. So his group are exploring technologies to use, again, use biology and engineered cells to actually take some of this fish waste and derive this adipic acid chemical out of it. So that's a really nice example of taking food and then getting chemicals out of it. Do you foresee any problems in the public adopting this kind of technology in their daily lives? As I said before, there's been a very interesting response to this vanilla from plastic work. Some people think, oh, this is brilliant. This is the best thing ever. And other people have said, oh, my goodness, this is ridiculous. This isn't safe. We should be eating plastic. I think there is a very important and quite interesting public engagement piece of work that needs to go along with this. I don't know whether it's, it's correct for us as the researchers to be doing this, but perhaps the, 
you know, the companies who will be the end users of this technology, I think they will have to think very carefully about how they will sway their, their, their market, their customer over to being accepting of this technology and understanding that once you've been through chemistry, once you've done all of that, the product that you get at the end of it is actually the same thing. And, you know, it's, it's, it's chemically indistinguishable from something that you get from so-called natural sources. I think it's fascinating the way that the, the public is very keen on this idea of natural and natural is good. And I think we perhaps need to spread the message that man-made is just chemically, it can be almost the same as natural. If you understand what the natural thing is made up of, if you, if you reproduce that in a chemical way or a synthetic way, you know, if you get the proportions right, it should be identical to the natural product. Because at the end of the day, both natural and synthetic things are made out of the same chemicals. They're all made out of the same elements, the same makeup, you know. It's, it's a very interesting message to get across, I think. And also natural is not always good. So arsenic's natural and there's many things which are natural and actually really quite toxic. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic, I think, sort of psychologically. <laughs> I hope they don't base the marketing campaign on arsenic as natural. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned there that the companies would have a big role to play in marketing these goods, but I'm curious to know as well what role you think scientists play in this field and what you're studying, but also in general in helping to communicate these topics as well. I personally believe it's really important, and that's one of the reasons I I love speaking to the public through podcasts such as this and through other public engagement activities. You know, obviously, a lot of the science that we do is publicly funded. We are funded by taxpayers, essentially, a lot of the time. And therefore, I really do think that we have a duty to back communicate to the, you know, the people who are funding this research at the end of the day and explaining what we're doing with that funding and how it's being put to good use. So I, I really think that we as scientists should be communicating. It's actually a duty that we should embrace this communication. And I think it's also important from also from the perspective of inspiring other people to get involved with science and really engage with it. Because at the end of the day, if we want new technologies to have impact, we have to get people on board with them. We know we have to get people to accept stuff made from plastic or what have you. So, yeah, it's, it's going to take everybody to, to get to that kind of more sustainable change that we need to be at. Have you been involved in any public engagement activities recently you'd like to tell us about? I actually run, I set up and run a, a school's outreach project during my PhD called Leaders in Science. This was a programme which we now run in collaboration with IBYYC, which is the Industrial Biotech Innovation Centre in Scotland. And this is basically the idea that mentors or PhD students from universities, Edinburgh, Glasgow University or Strathclyde or what have you, Herit Watt, they work with the same group of higher students in local schools they go through the process of delivering their own workshops and communication, teamwork, leadership skills courses, things like this. And then they actually mentor those students through the process of designing their own workshops, which they then take into primary school. So you've got this kind of cascade learning thing. And this is great for just developing communication and leadership teamwork skills amongst not only the PhD students, but also the, the secondary school students as well. So that's great. And I also do a little bit of this. I'm actually doing a talking science lecture um, next week, which will be really fun. So that's the opportunity to, to speak to a, a wider audience, perhaps not specialist audience. And again, spread the word about how great microbes are and how wonderful they are for, for doing exciting, useful chemistry. And maybe looking back to your younger self or looking to the students that are taking up your outreach programme, is there anything you'd like to say to yourself or them at their age to help spark them to get into science? 
I would tell them probably that, you know, most of science is undiscovered. And I think that's really an exciting concept. You know, most of science is actually waiting for them to go and discover it and pull off the blanket and see what's what's they're waiting for us. And if you think about it like that, then, you know, I, I find that a very motivating and exciting reason to come into work every day and keep keep trying and keep pushing through the failures because someone's got to make those big breakthroughs. And there are a lot of challenges to address, as we've discussed, uh, facing our society at the moment. So don't give up. Don't think that all science has been discovered and that now we're just optimizing things. No, we've, we've really got a lot to do. And there's just so much that we don't know. You know, we're just at the advent of things like, you know, next generation sequencing and you know, the human, human genome project, things like this. We've just opened that door into this whole new world of science and there's just so much to do. Thank you so much to Joanna for joining us on this episode. It was a treat talking to her about her work converting plastic bottles to vanillin. We can't wait to see what other ways she'll use synthetic biology to tackle some of the world's greatest challenges. If you're inspired to learn more about Joanna's work, you can find her on Twitter at at joesadler10. That's at joesadler10. Or if you want to know more about biotechnology courses at the University of Edinburgh, we'll link to those in the show notes or maybe you're considering a PhD, you could also find info to apply for Joe's new research group. This podcast is brought to you by Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university and beyond. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com. And you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by Alex Bailey and me, Hannah Muir. The podcast logo was designed by USCI Chief Editor Apo Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkarama by Kevin MacLeod, and the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science! <laughs>